It is a pleasure to be with you as we are continuing in this series called One Nation Under God, a series in which we are tackling a very divisive subject within our culture today, this subject of politics, and we're actually thinking very carefully about what does it mean for us as Christians to engage in a society where politics are dividing everything. Not just one party from another, not just our government, but dividing our homes, dividing our communities, dividing our friendships as we debate and argue and fight over these very important issues. That's really why we're doing this series is because we want to understand how we can engage in this cultural conversation well. Now, a couple of years ago, I had the benefit of reading a book called American Grace by the sociologist Robert Putnam, and he noted that among the Christians, talking about, uh, talking about politics on Sunday morning, talking about politics in church is very taboo. He noted that uh, 75% of evangelical Christians actually prefer to not hear about politics from their pastors, that 80% of Catholics would prefer that politics is not mentioned from the pulpit. And that 85% of mainline Protestants don't want to hear about politics or government during Sunday worship. Putnam went on to say this. He said, if this many Americans disapprove so strongly of explicit political appeals, then clergy who engage in politics risk censure from their members. Even worse, in a competitive religious market, they risk an exodus of members. So I hope you will all come back again next weekend. (laughs) Because I recognize that by us tackling this subject, we are treading on thin ice. But one of the things that we understand as people of faith is Jesus calls us to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, and all of our mind. It means that we have to be willing to engage in the study and and wrestling with difficult subjects. Subjects like politics and the relationship between church and state. And so it is in obedience to that calling. Out of a desire to be renewed by the transforming of our minds that I want us to continue to engage in this subject together. But I think it's only right that before we actually take a look at God's word, we allow him to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me. Lord God, we give you thanks that you have indeed gathered us together this morning so that we can understand what it means to be peacemakers in a divided world. So that we can engage in a particularly divisive subject in a way that is wise and gracious. And so, Lord, as we prepare to dive in and to really look at what your word has to say, we ask that you would give us open hearts and minds to receive the message you have for us. And, Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So last week, we talked about what our posture should be as people of faith. We began this sermon series by looking specifically at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that sermon in which he describes what it actually means to be citizens of his kingdom, and how as citizens of this kingdom, we interact with and relate to our neighbors and and those around us. We looked specifically at the Beatitudes and saw that one of the things that we are called to be is peacemakers in a world of division, people who pursue God's shalom in all of its fullness and depth and beauty. That's really our calling. That's what our heart posture should be. 
But the question now becomes, what is God's will for church and state? How does God understand government and what it means for us to engage in government well? How does God understand what it means for us to be his people, to be the church, to be, yes, a a gathered people, but an institution in society as well? What is the right relationship between those two things? That's really what we're going to be talking about this morning. And it's a subject, it's a question that has captivated some of the most brilliant minds in the history of the church. From St. Augustine to Martin Luther, Christians have really wrestled with what is our right relationship to those in authority. How do we properly understand the role that government is supposed to play? And one of the metaphors that has come up over and over and over again, regardless of which theologian has been tackling it, as they've wrestled with scripture, is, that, is this idea that God rules the world with both hands. He rules the world through the civil realm and also the spiritual realm. His left hand is the hand of government, by which he rules through temporal powers in order to bring about justice in the world. His right hand is, his, is him ruling the world spiritually through the church by bringing the good news of the gospel to all people. But here's what's important to recognize. Both of these things are God's. They belong to him. He rules through both of them, working in partnership and in conjunction with one another. When we talk about the left and the right hand of God, when we talk about the civil realm and the spiritual realm, when we talk about the kingdom of God and the earthly kingdom, what we're not talking about is we're not saying that there's God's kingdom versus Satan's kingdom. That's not what this doctrine or this piece of theology is referring to. Likewise, we're not talking about a separation of church and state. As you'll see, actually, both these hands work together quite well. They work together best when they're properly understood and working in harmony and in partnership with each other. And in order to best see how this plays out, I want us to take a look at one of the passages that has informed many Christian thinkers down through the ages when it comes to this subject. And that is 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to 1 Peter 2 with me. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, that's going to be on page 1015. Page 1015. But I want us to take a look at this passage together because 1 Peter 2 gives us a beautiful understanding of these two realms, of these two kingdoms, of these two ways that God rules within the world. I want us to start by looking at 1 Peter 2 verse 13 where Peter talks about earthly powers and government. He says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you would put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. See, right here, Peter addresses the subject of government and authority head-on. He says that it's God's will that we would be subject to human authorities, to human institutions, to those in power. Now, this is particularly surprising when you think about the context in which Peter is writing. Because he's writing at a time when the earthly government, that is the emperor in Rome, was hostile to the church. When the church was seen as an outlaw religious group. 
when Christians were being persecuted, beaten, thrown in jail, and executed by this government, the question then becomes, how can Peter possibly say this? How is it that he, living under a dictatorship, ruled by tyrants who were self-interested, tyrants who loved to cling to power, who had no respect for the rule of law or for truth, how could Peter write this? That we're to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Well, it's because Peter had a far deeper and more robust understanding of God's purpose for government than I think we do. It was a deeper understanding that cuts beyond the individuals who are ruling, the individuals who currently occupy seats of power. It gets to the foundational nature of what is government in the eyes of God. And the thing that Peter believes through his own reflection on the scriptures, his own meditation on how God works in the world, is that human governments are instituted by God for our good. That regardless of who is in that seat, the purpose that God has given them is for our benefit, to pursue good and to punish and restrain evil. And what's amazing about this is that this is something that God laid down all the way back at the beginning of creation. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, shortly after God creates human beings, this is what he says. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it, over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, what, it, what the writer of Genesis is saying there is that we as human beings are called to use human authority to rule the world the way God desires us to rule it. What we see is that human authority and power and government is something that existed even before the fall, even before sin entered this world, even before human beings rebelled against their God and their creator. God established human authority to rule in ways that are reflective of his character and of his purposes. From the very, very beginning, government was a good thing. It was a gift that God gave to us in order to establish his justice and his goodness upon the earth. So when we think about government, it's important for us to recognize that those are the purposes for which government has been established. It's something that's reflected even here in 1 Peter chapter 2. When talking about why God instituted such governments and authorities, he says it's, they are sent by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. In short, the role of government in the eyes of God is to establish his justice on the earth. To establish God's justice on the earth. To promote goodness and to restrain evil. He says that's the reason God instituted these governments. That's the purpose and the calling and the mission that government has. Now, it's important to acknowledge one thing. Let's, let's be clear about what Peter is not saying. Peter is not saying that the earthly governments have the right to define justice. He's not saying that earthly governments have the right to define what is good and what is evil. 
No, those are definitions that can only be given to us by God. God alone determines what true justice is and what it looks like. God alone determines what is truly good and what is evil. But governments operating the way they're supposed to, operating within their mandate given to them by God, embrace that definition of justice, embrace that definition of goodness and evil, and ensure that it is lived out and carried out in the context of human society. So how do we know if our governments are really doing a good job with that? Well, one, by comparing what they're doing to God's word. But I also love what the great German theologian Ulrich Duckerau said about this. He says, The crucial test in determining whether the institutions are concerned about safeguarding the common good is this. Do they protect and care for the well-being of the weakest member of society? Let me say that again. Do they protect and care for the well-being of the weakest member of society? Do our governments ensure justice for all or just justice for some? Do our governments and our systems and our laws favor only those who have and ignore those who have not? Do our laws and our systems, our governments and our rulers Ensure that justice is established for every single member of our society, not just those who can shout the loudest or who have the largest platform. Is it justice even for the weakest member of society according to God's definition of justice and righteousness? He says that's how we know whether or not our governments are doing what they're called to do. But we ask that question recognizing that they're given to us for our good, for our blessing, and for our benefit. Regardless of who it is that may be occupying a certain office or position of power, at their heart, government is God's gift. And like all things, he desires to use it for his purposes in the world. We're to summarize what, how God rules with his left hand, how he rules through the civil realm. It's, it's in this way, by establishing law and justice. By promoting peace and ensuring the common defense. By encouraging human flourishing. Ensuring that it's promoted and advanced for all members of society. When you look at the scriptures and you see how God uses earthly government, this is the way he prefers to do it. This is the purpose and the calling they have, which is why we as Christians shouldn't shy away from getting involved. From participating through things like paying our taxes and voting. Participating by maybe even working for a political campaign or even running for office ourselves. Participating by serving in our armed forces or serving in, in our police and, and firefighters and first responders. We shouldn't shy away from participating in these ways because these are all ways in which we can engage in government. Engage in the civil realm in ways that are reflective of God's purposes for us. We step into those spaces saying, how is it that I can be an advocate for justice here for all? Justice as God defines it. How can I be a part of promoting good and restraining evil? And above all things, we certainly pray. We pray for our leaders and those who are in authority. I know that this is something that often takes people back when they uh, first visit our church. Because typically when we get to our prayer time, we'll lift up prayers for those who are in office, right? We'll pray for our president, that our president has wisdom. We'll pray for those who are in elected positions. We pray for judges and so on and so forth. And it doesn't matter who's in office. Invariably, I get somebody come up to me and say, how can you do that? 
How can you pray for so-and-so? Don't you know he or she is blah, blah, blah? And we say, look, what we recognize as Christians is that if they are in that position of authority, they are answerable to God for the laws that they pass and the policies that they pursue. And so of all people in this world, we think they need wisdom the most. And so we pray for them. We pray that they would be wise, that their hearts and their minds would be soft to the truth of God, that they would be people who submit to his definition of justice and goodness, that they live it out and have that kind of character and integrity, and that they pursue it in the laws that they pass. That's why we pray for them. We don't care who's in office. We pray for all of them because they all need the wisdom of God in order to carry out that mandate well and faithfully. We can engage in the civil realm because we understand the important role that it plays in God's ruling of the world. That brings us to the church then. So if that's the role of government, to to pass laws, to establish God's justice, to promote good and restrain evil, what is the role of the church? And again, I think 1 Peter 2 is a beautiful study in helping us understand what our role is. Here's what he says, starting in verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the nations honorable so that they may speak, uh, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. See, what Peter is saying here is he's saying the church too has a mission. And that mission is to go out into the world among the nations. And through our words and our deeds, through both what we say and what we do, help people to come to grips with who God is. That in what we say and do, people might encounter the God who loves us and come to praise him. It means that we enter into this world as salt and light, bringing about a difference, a change in our world that is so tangible, so, uh, so strange and beautiful, so, 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 so incredibly obvious that people wonder, what is it that makes these people different? We are to engage in a world that seeks, in a way that seeks to transform hearts and minds not just pass laws. I think this is incredibly important for us because Martin Luther says that the reason God needs to rule the world this way is because there are certain things that government just can't touch. He says, over the soul, God can and will let no one rule but himself. Therefore, where temporal power presumes to prescribe laws for the soul, it encroaches upon God's government and only misleads and destroys souls. See, here's what Martin Luther is saying there. He's saying that when the church suddenly gets involved in the, in the business of politicking, we do so at great cost because we've lost sight of our primary calling. Some of the darkest moments in the church's history is when we have tried to seize power 
uh, government's way. When we've tried to seize power and pass laws to change hearts. He says you can't do that. Laws will never change the human heart. And yet over and over and over again, I see Christians engaging in politics in ways that truly destroy souls. We start advocating for one party over another. We start giving this message that if our guy doesn't get into office, that suddenly somehow God has lost control. And, we, and we, we will vote for and advocate for and participate in these campaigns no matter how, how far that we have to compromise what we believe to be true. We will cut corners in order to elect our own position. And when that happens, honestly, we destroy souls. Nothing turned me off more as a non-Christian than when I saw my Christian friends engaging in politics in unchristian ways. When I saw my Christian friends suddenly abandon their care for the poor and the meek, suddenly abandon their, their care for those who have less, suddenly abandon their care for those who are of a different uh, race or of a different country or of a different cultural background, all for the sake of getting their guy in office. Did you forget the Beatitudes? Did you suddenly somehow forget what it means to be a follower of Jesus? That was my question. And oftentimes we as Christians, we engage in politics on politics terms. And in doing so, we forsake our mission to be salt and light. To recognize that no matter who gets elected into office and no matter what laws we pass, it will never change the human heart. That is a responsibility and an authority that God has given to the church. Our responsibility is to go out into the world with the good news of the gospel because that alone is going to change hearts. Yeah, the government can pass laws that will basically uh, guard and protect and shape our external behavior. But if you truly want to see a transformation of the world, it's only going to come by God bringing people back to life again. By his Holy Spirit working in their hearts through the gospel, through the good news. That the only way people are going to stop grasping for their own power, seeking their own ends, is when they recognize that they are deeply loved by God. When they stop rebelling against him, but suddenly come to him as Lord and Savior. When they recognize that, that God loves this whole world, that he's got an amazing purpose for it, and that he wants us to be a part of it, a purpose in bringing, yes, justice, but ultimately bringing peace and shalom to this world, the only way that that transformation is going to happen is if they see uh, God's character demonstrated in the person of Jesus. Where Jesus alone walked this line beautifully. Jesus alone demonstrated the Beatitudes far and above anything that any one of us could possibly do. He was the ultimate peacemaker. He was the ultimate servant. He was the king who knew how to wield his power with gentleness. And our job as the church is to help people encounter him through our words and our deeds, to help them see the character of Jesus as he's reflected in how we conduct ourselves in the world. You know, a part of me wonders if Christians would take all that energy that we've been pouring into political debates and actually dedicated that to examining our own lives, what the difference would be. 
If instead of stressing out about who the next person is who gets elected and going to war on Facebook and retweeting our, fav- our favorite memes and, and, and reposting our favorite partisan columnists, what if we stepped back and we actually said, what would it mean for me to become the kind of person that I would be willing to follow? What would it mean for me to actually reflect the grace and the purposes of Jesus in my daily life? If we dedicated those energies to passing on our faith to the next generation, to praying for our, for our country, no matter who's in charge, to talking with our neighbors about where our ultimate hope is found and that it's something that goes far beyond the next election cycle, I think we would see a radically transformed society. I think if Christians got involved in political campaigns with that mentality, we would actually have substantive debates for once in a while. That if we got involved in our schools and our communities with that kind of mentality, what we would see is actual transformation. Not just because some policy was put forward, but because transformed people who know the love and justice of God within their hearts are living out his plan and purposes in everyday ways. It's a beautiful gift. It's the calling that God has given to us as the church. This is how he rules the world with his right hand. By ensuring that the good news is preached, that grace is given, that hearts are transformed, and that people are instructed in the faith. Left and right hand working together in beautiful harmony to bring about the transformation in this world that God desires. To be reflective of his kingdom and to faithfully steward this world until he comes again to establish that kingdom in fullness. In short, we need to learn to live as dual citizens. People who recognize that, as Peter says, we are indeed a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. But who recognize that we live in the United States and as such we have responsibilities to that government. And we participated in ways that we participate in it in ways that bring about real and lasting change. I think a great example of this is actually an example that comes to us from our own congregation. This past year, a, a one of your own, a member named Erica, was given an amazing opportunity. Somebody said, We think that there is a position on the Wheaton City Council and that you would be great to fill it. And they asked her to run for office. I want you to hear her story. Listen to this. I first got involved in politics. In college, it started to interest me. Um, and then I became a civics teacher. I've taught seniors for much of my career. And so they're turning 18, about to turn 18, about to leave their parents' homes. And I've always advocated for them. I've been a huge advocate for my students to register to vote, go out and vote, get informed. I think it's really important that they're a part of their their community, um, the, whether it's local government or um, the national government. And over the last year or two, I've had a few people suggest that maybe when are you gonna run for office? And then I, like most things that people volunteer for, I actually had someone knock on my door and say, uh, there's an opening in Wheaton City Council and I think you'd be perfect for it based my ideas on my upbringing and my Christian faith and my values. And that took some time to really set in place what I wanted for my community and what I thought I could do for my community. 
I have always been drawn to a Bible verse in Micah, Micah 6, 8. It speaks of justice, mercy, and walking humbly with your God. And that has definitely informed both when I was running for city council and now that I'm on city council. Um, I think those are three very powerful factors in in focusing my intentions, focusing my actions, and focusing my interactions with community members when we're trying to make decisions. Right, during the campaign, what came to mind constantly um, was also Matthew 22, which is Jesus saying that the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor. I mean, how better to love your neighbor than serve in some kind of local capacity, whether it's on a, a board or a commit, you know, part-time commission or the whole city council. I mean, as a city council member, my main focus is to build our community to be stronger, to be welcoming, uh, and to serve all the members of our community. So what better way to focus on that than to consider Jesus' own words that the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor. If anyone in our congregation or any of your friends and family of a Christian background are considering running for public office, I would say go for it. If you're thinking of doing it, we are all more qualified than we all believe ourselves to be. You just want to continually go back to those important principles that we have based on the words of Jesus, whether it's loving your neighbor, um, walking humbly with your God, but being a, a just and fair elected official is really what's important. And we can all do that and we should all participate in that. Like I said there, she said, what better way to love your neighbor than to get involved in some sort of local capacity, some form of, of government, some way of serving your community. And really, that's what it means to be a dual citizen, is to recognize the, the role and the calling the government have and to support that calling and to be a part of that calling, but also to never abandon our calling as the church in preaching that good news. I think that's why Micah 6.8 is such a beautiful verse because it tells us in summary how to do that. To be people who do justice, who love kindness, and who walk humbly with our God. If we can do that, I think that we will be able to step into that calling to be dual citizens both in the left-hand kingdom and the right. Both as citizens of the United States, but also people of God's kingdom. Now, many of you are probably wondering, what happens when our obedience to the government and our obedience to God clash? We're going to talk about that next week. But if I leave you with nothing else, I want to leave you with this. Remember your calling. God is on his throne. He rules this world with both justice and mercy. And he invites us to be a part of bringing that message to the nations by doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with him. It's in the name of our God that we say, Amen.